Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I've got to just describe the scene to you, uh, where I am right now. <laughs> I'm sitting in, it's a very World Bank Spring Meetings classic moment. I'm inside the World Bank in a lounge that's been set up to sort of advertise the, the annual meeting coming in to Marrakesh. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking across at Rachel Kite, who is joining us in this conversation in just a moment. And, and Rachel is surrounded. She's framed by beautiful mannequins wearing amazing dresses from Morocco. There are Moroccan lamps. Um, it's quite a scene. It does make me want to look ahead to the annual meetings, which I think we'll talk about today as well. Um, it's been a busy, busy week, and we're just going to talk about what happened. So I've got, as I mentioned, with me here, um, the one and only Rachel Kite, who is the dean of the Fletcher School, who has been a leader in the climate movement, a special envoy on climate. She's had many roles. People don't need an introduction in this world, I think. Um, and I want to hear from her. And we've got Jeremy Hillman as well, my friend, who is uh, currently at MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, but has worn many hats, including running communications here at the World Bank at the Gates Foundation, working at Microsoft, et cetera, et cetera, a longtime BBC journalist. Uh, Jeremy, Rachel, hi. Hey, Raj. I feel very sad not to be with you, uh, but I can picture the scene. It's... Yeah, no, we've got some mint tea for you, Jeremy. <laughs> it is quite a scene. So let, let's just dive in. I, the point of this conversation, besides the fact that I'd love to just talk to the two of you anytime I get that chance, is to hear what you think happened this week. You know, what are some of the highlights? What are some of the the things that came out. And of course, I've got some reflections of my own. But maybe, Rachel, I can just start with you. What, what's, what's top of mind? Well, it's been quite an extraordinary week because there's a lot of drama running up to this meeting. Um, change in leadership at the World Bank group itself with uh, Ajay Banga as the presumptive president and lots of conversation about how to get the international financial system fit for purpose for a poly crisis a debt crisis, a climate crisis, uh, slowing economic growth, really quite devastating figures coming out in the IMF at the beginning of the week. And what I've detected here is well, we're a long way from implementing things differently, but a sort of coalescing around the fact that things do need to change, some short-term things that we can do within the current structure, but really some very serious conversations about how the structures themselves and the rules of the road are going to have to be reformed. So um, a quite sober, practical meeting, I think, um, but with an awful lot of work to do between now and Marrakesh. You, you know what uh, it reminds me of? It's that movie, The Two Popes. You've got, literally this happened yesterday. You had David Malfest here at the World Bank, of course, the current president. And then you had Ajay Banga coming through the offices. You have these two popes, in a sense, very different worldviews, very different backgrounds, and it's like when we had, you know, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis in, in the Vatican at the same time with com coming from completely different perspectives, but, you know, trying to, to coexist. And that's these spring meetings is fascinating in that you've got the old guard, you've got a current sitting president in some ways saying the same things as Ajay Banga, who's been running around the city on the outskirts of town, 
uh, having a million bilateral meetings as he prepares to take over the role, you know, at probably July 1st, maybe a bit sooner. It's just a fascinating moment. I don't think there's anything, anything like it before. Jeremy, you, of course, know Ajay. Um, what's your take on this week? What's top of mind for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I agree with what Rachel said. I caveat is I haven't spent a lot of time at the bank and the fund this week because I've been pretty busy with our little uh, Global Inclusive Growth Summit that you know uh, well, Raj, and we work together on. But I feel it is this strange sort of interregnum. It's almost this this meetings of anticipation. I do feel there's been this this huge urgency and reality to the conversations. There's not been a lot of diplomatic niceties skirting around the issues. There's been pretty real conversations about what needs to be done. Uh, quite a lot of excitement about uh, change in leadership at the bank. Uh, but we're not quite there yet. So it's been a, almost a slight sort of vacuum. And as you say, these two circling, uh, uh, these two circling personalities, you know, David, who I work with, you know, closely for, for a long time, you know, on, on the way out and, uh, and Ajay on the way in. And uh, yeah, it's been a very strange, strange atmosphere. But also, I think a huge amount of activity in Washington and around the meetings as well, more, I think, than previous years, this whole ecosystem feels like it's building to me of taking these meetings more seriously. A lot of different side events, not just our own one, but a lot of other organizations, a lot more private sector figures, I think, in town than usual, which is not surprising, uh, given that, you know, the sort of direction that Ajay is likely to take things. So, uh, yeah, really interesting week. Yeah. And I think this really strong message that while this presidential transition is important, it's not about one man, right? So obviously, Ajay trying to manage expectations, um, but some really tough talking going on between governments. The developing world or the global south, you know, finding their voice. I mean, Mia Motley saying to John Kerry, you know, if all you're going to do is talk, please be quiet. Um, you know, you've got to bring money, you've got to bring action, you've got to bring deliverables. And that was on sort of climate finance and restructuring the international system so it helps pay countries or invest in countries before they're hit by disaster rather than bailing them out afterwards. Um, and then I was talking to, you know, former colleagues at the bank who were like, just enough with the blah, blah, blah. We have got to find ways to make the money available for what is needed, you know, and it's just too easy to sort of, you know, ask for reform. We've got to get down into the nitty gritty. So a real sense that countries themselves know they've got to get into the underneath the hood of this institution and make it work. But something, something told me yesterday that over $30 billion worth of sort of funds that have been gone to the board and approved are sitting there not dispersed, right? And we're in the middle of a crisis. This money's got to flow out of the system much more quickly. So I think quite sober. Yeah, there's... And, and Rachel, you're, you're obviously right. It's not about one man, but there's this huge expectation been building. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know, we've both got 100 colleagues, thousands of colleagues at the bank, and they're sort of hanging off every word. Ajay was on NPR this morning. He's been everywhere, as Raj says. And uh, everyone is passing every word and working out what to expect. And I think that's been fascinating because, you know, I mean, they, 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 you know, uh, these expectations are, are huge and maybe unmanageable in the short term. And, and, and this honeymoon period is not going to be a, is not going to be long. You know, there, there's a lot of urgency. Yeah, and real consensus that, you know, things are good. Instruments have to be used differently. Money has to be leveraged differently. Balance sheets need to be used differently. But the culture has to change. Too inward looking, too slow too uh, risk averse and I think that you know how he comes in and sets a tone from the top is what everybody's waiting for so yeah we as Raj said a sort of strange interregnum. Yeah I interviewed um, Axel von Trotzenberg and Anna Bierde who were the 
the elevated managing director is Axel has this new role of senior managing director and Anna is the new managing director for operations, Axel's old job. And they're, they're kind of everyone singing from the same song, song book, it feels like, right? They're saying all the right stuff around private sector now. There seems to be this coalition building behind the evolution roadmap. But then I run into lots of skeptics here. They say, come on, you know, people are saying that, but it's like any other bureaucracy, it's going to be entrenched. They've been doing this for many years and they're going to expect, you know, Bonga to do the, the fireworks on the outside and internally in the bank, nothing's really going to change. So I, I don't know if either of you have perspectives about that, but I feel like I run into probably an equal number of people who are excited, optimistic, and then the skeptics who say, hey, this, this institution never can change. Well, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting, and, and RJ's been out there sort of saying it publicly and, and privately, is, you know, it's it's not about structural change. It is about culture, as, as Rachel said. And, and you know, RJ's got this amazing track record of, uh, of leading, you know, complex organizations and shifting and setting culture. So that's where I think it's going to be fascinating. And he's been talking a lot about outcomes and incentives and not restructuring and how I'm going to organize things. He's going to be sort of, you know, I feel really focused on that. And it's going to be a sort of fascinating to see how that plays out in the context of the, the bank that we all know really well. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. You know, if you think about what's different about Ajay Banga, look back at all the World Bank presidents we've ever had. So we've had investment bankers. They're not really managers. You know, these are these are finance guys from Wall Street. We've had them before. We've had people who come from the world of government. I'm thinking of like Paul Wolfowitz. You know, even probably the most celebrated former World Bank president in Jim Wolfenson, he was more of a finance guy, right? He built his own investment bank, a boutique firm. Ajibanga is the first manager really ever to take this job, like the first person who's had to manage 10, 15, I think 17,000 employees or something like that, 20,000 employees. He's the first person who has that characteristic, which is part of what the Treasury Department was using to sell him when they were calling governments and saying, hey, this is our, our pick that he's going to lead a change management process at the World Bank. Not exactly, as you say, Jeremy, not just a structural reform, but as Rachel says, a cultural change. Yeah, and I think that it's multiple balance sheets as well. We talk about the bank, but it's the bank group. Yeah, we've got IDA, we've got IBID, we've got IFC, MEGA, all of them need to be much right. greater, leveraged to a much greater effect. But I think there's, I've heard a couple of really interesting observations. I'm, I'm, I've been named to a, a G20 expert group on MDB reform. So very interesting to sort of make recommendations on MDB reform when you've got this transition. And I think that in previous, right, this is not the first rodeo on MDB reform over the last few decades. But previously, when we were talking about MDB reform, it was about let's change the bank and then all the other regional development banks and other banks sort of all follow on, right? 
this time there's a feeling that there's a real MDB system that has to be reformed. The bank, of course, is primus into Paris, but it is the system now. You've got a new development bank. You've got the Asia Infrastructure, uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank. You've got the regional development banks that are really quite moving ahead of the bank in many ways in terms of their assertion and their aggression around inclusion and around climate and things like that. So now, you know, the bank is, you know, one jewel in a crown of, you know, of jewels. And so that's, I think, quite different than, than previously. And, yeah, huge and expectations way, of Ajay. And by the way, Rachel, to, exactly to your point, one person just told me recently, look, the, look at the evolution roadmap. It's all about the World Bank. And, and that's got to change, meaning this is not just a conversation about how does the World Bank reform. It's a conversation about the broader MDB system, exactly as you described. Because if you think of it from the perspective of the shareholder countries, you know, it's not so much one institution or another. They're looking at global public goods, global systemic challenges, especially climate. And they're saying, all right, what are all the tools at our disposal? How do we harmonize those? And it, it doesn't matter if the World Bank makes a few changes, if the whole system hasn't changed. Yeah, so you hear the phrase radical collaboration being mentioned, right? And so, you know, it stands in the shoes of the, of the country that's borrowing, right, from the system. And, you know, how many, inter, you know, there's been more and more coordination amongst the banks in the last 20 years. Um, there's been more um, alignment of policies and strategies and things like that. But you're still having to deal with a system, you know, you have to deal with your regional development bank, they have to deal with the World Bank, and then you have to deal with the IMF, and you have to deal, you know, is there a way that the system can be more user-friendly, even than what we've got now? So I think these are big questions, it's all on the table, and as Ajay Banga arrives and has to make sure that culture doesn't kill strategy at the bank group, he's going to be the convener-in-chief, the collaborator-in-chief for the whole system. Especially, and Rachel, I I'd be, inter- I'd be interested in, in both of your thoughts on this this whole sort of debate around how does the bank how does the bank define itself? Is it is it the poverty alleviation bank? Is it the climate bank? And I just I mean I don't buy that as being such a this clear distinction. But I just I'd love to hear we, your guys. We actually on that. just post published a survey today of development professionals in the DevEx community. Nine hundred of them, about a third work or worked at the World Bank, and as you might expect, the majority really don't see such a clear dichotomy between the two. They can see the connection point. You know, development professionals get it that climate and development are quite linked. But there's a substantial minority who see this as something of a trade-off and are concerned about that. And and many, more than I expected, who said, you know what, maybe the bank shouldn't become a climate bank as its first priority. Maybe there's too much of a trade-off here and and it should continue to to just focus on poverty as its main goal. So I I think it's a narrative issue because I personally don't think of it as a real dichotomy. I think it's a false dichotomy, but there is some work to be done, even even still on, on, on generating a narrative that everybody can get behind as to what the main point of the bank is. So I think this is a gravy problem. If you've got a lot of gravy, um, it, it becomes less of an issue. What I mean by that is if we were leveraging and generating, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars of investment into green economy globally, then I don't think this would be a problem. But at the moment for IDA countries, so the low-income countries, you know, they are desperately in need of you know, budget support for health and education and all of the other things that are going on as the global economy slows. And the idea that development money is going to go to a middle-income country for green infrastructure and green power um, and not perhaps... And, and, and the fear that that would be a trade-off then between them getting 
uh, budget support for what they really need. And of course, they want to have green infrastructure and clean infrastructure and clean air and all the rest of it as well. But they're just worried that there's always going to be a trade-off. And I think it's interesting when you talk to executive directors here at the banks, so the members of the board, and they'll tell you that you know what borrowing countries are asking for is poverty alleviation they're not asking for climate now if you travel and you go to a capital city and you sit and talk to the minister of finance of the capital city they'll tell you that climate is taking percentage points of gdp away it's cratering their ability to invest in what's necessary so i I think it's it's how does how do people use the system when they worry that the system isn't capitalized and leveraged effectively there isn't enough money for everything yeah, and I'd recommend a blog post that just came out from Hans-Peter Lenkes, who's you know, formerly of the World Bank, you all know him, um, on the ODI website. And he, he gets into this in some detail, basically saying, let's get away from the idea that the low-income countries, we just focus on poverty there and, and climate just in middle income. And he's got a, lot, a series of really detailed ideas about how you can better use concessional finance in the lowest-income countries. And a reminder that actually, you know, these climate issues, they're going to hit the low-income countries the worst. Right. So mitigation matters there, too. Not that you need to do mitigation in those countries because they're big emitters. They're not. But because, you know, climate matters there as well. And so part of it, I think, is this, you know, maybe just coming from this from a journalistic standpoint. But a lot of it, to my mind, is a narrative formation problem. You know, uh, the way we talk about this, like when we say climate, a lot of people are imagining, oh, solar panels and, and windmills. Right. But I'm thinking about things like drought resistant seeds. You know, like if we think about climate as adaptation it fits very neatly into what we traditionally would call global development. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, Jeremy, you guys at MasterCard, you're doing this, right? I mean, bringing together the whole discussion around financial inclusion and, you know, adaptation and resilience uh, to, to climate change. I think that when you turn the sort of hourglass all the way around and you, you stand in the shoes of, you know, uh, a, a small business owner, you know, in the outskirts of a town, a growing town in, you know, a Sahelian uh, country, then there isn't any dichotomy between climate and development or poverty alleviation and shared prosperity and climate. It's basically all the same thing. Um, And then the further you get away from that ultimate beneficiary of the system, the more language gets in the way. That's right. I mean, it's easy to go down this rabbit hole with sort of false dichotomies, but the the interrelationships are are so clear. And it's what we've spent the whole week, you know, uh, at our, at our inclusive growth summit, you know, with with Raj and, and yourself, Rachel, discussing all these different sort of lenses on inclusive growth, and and, and they're all part of the same, uh, you know, they're all part of the same subject. I'd love to get the take of both of you on the kind of real news that came out this week, because I think there's sort of two major news headlines. One is that China agreed that it will work with the MDBs to come to some kind of agreement. Uh, around restructuring debt in the in the countries that are right on the brink, right of default, and that's that's a big headline. And they, essentially, it sounds like the World Bank and other MDBs have agreed. Look, in exchange, we're not going to restructure our debt. It has most seniority in the world, but we will we'll do some more concessional finance through IDA to try to grease the skids in these countries. That to me seems one big headline, and the other big one. There was no headline around it, but I think it's just a reality that we've all realized there is not going to be a general capital increase. Right. There's not going to be more money coming into this bank, uh, even with Ajay Banga joining. Right. And there seems to have been a a message from the U.S. and the other major uh, shareholders, uh, certainly the Western ones, saying, look, uh, we need to find a way to, to quote unquote, sweat the balance sheet more with what we use, what we have already leverage it more. 
what, what do you think, Rachel, maybe starting with you, like, do, do those seem like the big headlines for you or is there something else we're missing? What's your take? Well, so on debt, yeah, I think that's a big headline. And I think that, especially sitting in Washington, there's sort of, two, you know, when you come to Washington, when you, when you don't live here, you, when, as soon as you land, it's like China, China, China. I mean, it is a town obsessed. And, you know, I've heard, you know, important European figures and others sort of saying, look, there's got to be a way to engage. And then China observers sort of saying, OK, well, there's this, you know, very tense geopolitical language of a friction between the US and China. But underneath, watch what China is saying and do, watch, watch what China is doing. And you can see that there's room for pragmatism in there. And Scott Morris at CGD has always called for zones of cooperation inside MDBs and within the MDB and IMF system. And I, I hope that sense can prevail and we can continue to build that. On um, on the general capital increase, I think, yeah, it's too early for that, right? The, first of all, Bangor has to come in. Some We have to sweat that balance sheet a bit more. I think there's this discussion around callable capital as opposed to paid-in capital. But you know, there is also, when you come at it from, from the perspective of the climate emergency, where we're talking about 2 to $2.8 trillion a year of investment needed in green infrastructure, et cetera, you know, even if you sweat the balance sheet and give the bank a global capital increase, you know, we're still going to be tens of billions better off, but not trillions, right? So the trillions, well, where do they come from? Well, look at all the sovereign funds that are not leveraging themselves. Look at um, all these other parts of the system that are not leveraged yet. And I think for the owners and for, the, and for countries out there, there's a really big question about what they're going to do, not just through the World Bank Group, um, but on their own account. And I think that for increasingly, for developing countries, um, if they don't see some movement this year, they don't see any movement in COP28, and the UAE is walking around with some finance proposals in very early stage, sort of gut-checking people on what they might do. I think if we don't make some kind of breakthroughs in, in terms of the money outside of the, the World Bank Group, then uh, we're going to have a pretty parlous end to the year. And Raj, I guess, I, no, I think your two headlines are probably pretty decent ones. Uh, I don't think I've got much to add on the debt other than I just, I'd probably note that I think, you know, you can argue a lot about David Malpass's legacy, but I think he has been early and strong on sovereign debt since uh, since the day he started at the bank. And I think he's really, he's, he's got ahead of this and he's really led the debates and discussions and uh, and it's why i think you know there's a there's a there's a discussion around a, a mixed legacy for david but he's been you know i think he's been incredibly strong and taken the bank in the right direction and led that conversation but on the leverage issue i think you're right i mean there's not going to be uh, there's not going to be a capital increase out of the gate uh, in any in any short term but i think it's going to depend on how new leadership at the bank and how the bank shows it's leveraging its balance sheet right now how is it, you know, how is it doing? Is it, is it working effectively and well? And then I wouldn't discount, you know, in, in a decent period of time, that discussion starting to gain momentum again. Uh, but there's got to be some action and some movement first uh, because it's not going to happen quickly. I mean, just on the sort of how do you make the system, how do you sweat the system to do more? I mean, there's been lots of conversations this week about the credit rating agencies and, you know, whether or not, you know, all of the MDBs together you know, talk to the credit rating agencies about opening up the way in which they are managed or evaluated. You know, how much more could you achieve if you were able to get some kind of collective agreement about how MDBs are treated? So I think that that, that conversation has certainly picked up speed this week. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to synthesize all the, the many discussions I've had, but I did hear from one senior person in the finance world saying, look, be very careful what you wish for. Like, we're all talking about sweating the balance sheet, but we may be heading into a worse global fiscal situation. I mean, this banking crisis maybe gets worse. And that's when you really feel good that you've got a gold-plated AAA balance sheet. So, you know, credit rating. So, you know, you can, you can see there's a, a diversity of perspectives here, which is part of why the expectations around Banga are so high, because people feel like something has to change and he's the most visible change coming, you know, very, very soon. Um, it's, it's a really crazy moment. I mean, I don't think I've been to a lot of spring meetings. I don't think there's been one with this level of attention and energy as, as Jeremy, you rightly said, like with the ecosystem around the actual bank meetings, this, this, and, and even the media attention and the journalists that are here, there's a lot more focus than ever right, right here this week. Yeah. And, t- and t- t- just on that, tackling that, that inertia around, around the AAA and, 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 pressuring the, the balance sheet that that is one issue inside the bank where i think you know aj faces a lot of internal you know resistance and uh, and a lot of uh, you know and i think it's it's going to be really tough uh, to navigate that yeah i think that the sort of playing with the triple a is almost off the table it's how within that triple a can the can the credit rating agencies uh, just you know recognize the track record of the of the banks differently and perhaps give them a little bit more space without fiddling with the AAA, because we are, you know, the IMF put out what the weakest growth growth numbers for the world for over 30 years. So I think that's pretty hairy. And I think the other thing is, you know, Ajay Banga by reputation knows how to manage change, knows how to manage big organizations. What you're always struck with at these meetings, that these buildings are jam-packed full of brilliant people. And if you can just unleash their potential, let them take a little bit more risk, let them get rewarded for innovation, measure them for outcomes rather than just for the volume of what they take to the board. I thought, I thought, I mean, people should listen to Ajay Banga's interview with NPR this morning on Morning Edition because I thought he was pitch perfect. And, you know, that's really where the excitement is. And, and the, speech you, the speech you gave to CGD, you know, echoed those points really strongly as well. I mean, he's been really clear on that. It's all about incentives and outcomes. Yeah, I, I think I agree. The people here are brilliant. But one of the other themes I've picked up this week is, you know, maybe we need either different people or we need the people who are here as brilliant as they are to essentially learn a new trade because the trade they've got is more akin to a, a, a traditional banker, right? They're, they're focusing on loans and we need to be more like investment bankers focused on deals, right? Thinking about how you bring in the private sector. We had uh, Julie Monica from City on stage just a couple hours ago here in the atrium. I thought she was brilliant about, you know, look, you, you, you want to do a new innovation and you get lots of attention. Everyone comes to the meetings. They get a new financial innovation off the ground. You want to scale it. Nobody has time or energy or attention to actually scale it. So you have all these interesting innovations all over the place. But what, we're, what we need now is scale if we want to get to those trillions. And she's saying, look, private sector is ready. We're ready to pull up a chair. But we need to have that counterpart. And I, and I think that's what I'm hearing a lot of as well this week. And, and, and risk, and two perspectives on risk as well. I think internally, it's got, you've, you've got to take more risk. You've got to encourage more of that risk taking. Externally, you've got to de-risk, you know, for the private sector. And I think approaching risk in, in sort of new ways that the bank is not traditionally been comfortable with is really important. But I think there's also this, this you know, for the last X many years, everybody's got really sort of high on the concept of blended finance, right? And blended finance is really important. So this is using public money to 
buy down the risk or to induce in the private sector and private sector finance into places it wouldn't go to things it wouldn't do on its own. But there are, especially for low-income countries, and whether it's climate adaptation or the hardest poverty alleviation work, you know, there are things that simply are going to have to be fully subsidised or fully concessional or grant money, including some of the capacity that has to be built in countries, right? There is no country in the world that's got the utilities that it needs for 100% renewable energy. There's not a country in the world that's got the legislative framework for the kinds of renewable energy power pools that we need. That doesn't come through blended finance or from lending, or it doesn't come from Goldman Sachs, it doesn't come from Frankfurt or London. It's going to come from you know, good old-fashioned pools, technical assistance. And I think that at the end of the day, we're going to have to find and protect the finances that are needed for that. And I think that, you know, many of the most vulnerable feel very nervous that as the economy slows, as ODA starts to get eaten away like a little Pac-Man, all of that ODA, I mean, I'm British, right? It's an absolute uh, crime that uh, $3.4 billion of our own, £3.4 billion are going to pay for you know refugees in the UK, and we're paying more per refugee than we've ever paid before. It's insane, and the you know developing countries watch that and they're like, eh, is that money going to be there? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a good point to end on, in part because I think it was very well said, and in part because I don't know how much longer we can keep all of the adoring fans off of Rachel. We're here in the we're here in this hallway, and uh, you you haven't even been able to see Rachel. All the people coming behind you, ready to tap on your shoulder, uh, not knowing we're on this live event, but. Look, I think you're absolutely right, and I think that, that what you highlighted so well that's worth just underlining is, although we're here very focused on these technical matters, dollars and cents and, and financial engineering, one thing the spring meetings has, has really brought home and made clear is for a lot of countries, there's a real crisis underway right now. Food prices, fertilizer, hunger. Uh, th- this is a, you know, it's a big macroeconomic story, of course, but the, the real world development impacts, the humanitarian impacts are big and they're real. They're happening right now. At the same moment, we're trying to imagine this new world where we can bring to bear a new global financial system and architecture that can get us to the Paris commitment. So this is a big consequential set of meetings this week and uh, great to get a chance to discuss them with my friends, Rachel and Jeremy. Thanks, Raj. Yeah, thanks, Raj. Keep up the great work, Devex. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a Devex Pro member by going to devex.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.